0: Okay, let's go over see what uh, Tucker Carlson is talking about tonight. Tucker Carlson tonight.
1: Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Happy Monday. Trying to stay cheerful in the face of everything that's happening to the country. We talk about it every night, multiple disasters all at once. But if you had to isolate one single tragedy that's produced the highest casualty rate in the United States, it would probably have to be the opioid crisis. Over the past 25 years, opioids have destroyed entire regions of the country, mostly rural areas, places populated by the people who built and fed this country for generations. Hundreds of thousands of them have died from opioids, and they're still dying. More than 100,000 drug ODs just last year, mostly from fentanyl. Fentanyl is imported from China. It's smuggled through Mexico. If you live here, you probably know someone who's died from fentanyl, probably someone's child. What you may have forgotten in the face of all this sadness is that the opioid epidemic was not organic. It didn't just happen one day because people in sparsely populated zip codes in Kentucky and Vermont and West Virginia suddenly felt sad and started taking dangerous drugs. No. This particular disaster was created by drug companies. That's true. Purdue Pharma kicked it off. They did so by aggressively marketing a narcotic called Oxycontin. They sold it to doctors, and doctors sold it to their patients, on the false claim it was non-addictive. It was very addictive. What happened next? Well, drive through upstate New York sometime. You can see the human carnage. Ultimately, Purdue Pharma faced a barrage of lawsuits and then criminal charges. In the end, however, not a single executive from that or any other drug company ever went to jail. So no one was ever really punished for all those deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Well, for a brief moment, it seemed possible that somebody would be punished. No one remembers this, but during the democratic primaries in 2019, Kamala Harris of all people described pharma executives as quote, nothing more than some high level dope dealers who should quote, be held accountable. Then a few months later, she went further than that. Harris suggested the drug companies were so evil, they might produce a COVID vaccine that wound up hurting people. Quote, If Donald Trump tells us we should take it, I'm not taking it, Harris said. And then other Democrats, including Andrew Cuomo, then the governor of New York, said the very same thing. But here's the amazing part. The second Joe Biden took office, talk talk like that stopped immediately. Never has a tune changed faster. Kamala Harris, who just months before had called drug companies dope dealers, suddenly sounded like the the chief chief marketing officer at Pfizer. Pfizer. At one point, Harris announced that volunteers would go, quote, door to door to promote Pfizer's products. Never in our history have federal officials touted a publicly held company more aggressively than the Biden administration touted Pfizer. And as a result, Pfizer's stock price exploded. Its executives made billions. Gone was any suggestion that the drug companies might be capable of doing anything wrong ever. Instead, the media and the Biden administration lauded pharma executives as moral heroes. And some of their products are life-saving, that That is true. But the bigger truth we are now learning is more complicated than that. In just the past few weeks, serious, very serious questions have emerged about some of the most widely prescribed drugs in America, very much including the COVID vaccines. But we want to begin tonight with what in any normal period would be front page news around the world. It turns out, The entire premise behind the most commonly prescribed antidepressant drugs appears to be completely wrong. These drugs are known as SSRIs. They're ubiquitous. Between 1991 and 2018, total SSRI prescriptions in the U.S. rose by more than 3,000%. The number of prescriptions for the most common SSRIs hit 224 million last year. 224 million prescriptions in a country of 330 million people. In other words, you know dozens of people who are taking SSRIs. You may be taking them right now. And yet for decades, there have been strong indications that there is a problem with these drugs. And the most obvious is this. Antidepressants are supposed to cure depression. That's why they're prescribed. And yet over the same period that SSRI prescriptions have risen 3,000%, The suicide rate, maybe the most reliable indicator of all of depression, has not fallen in the United States. In fact, the suicide rate has jumped by 35 percent. That's a huge increase. That's a lot of dead people. Now, drug makers admit that their products may be part of the reason for the increase in suicide. The makers of Prozac, for example, concede that young people who take that drug have an increased risk of suicide compared to those who took a placebo. Think about that for a second. A drug that's supposed to make you less sad may make it more likely that you will kill yourself. How is that allowed? Well, it's been allowed because virtually no one has said a word about it. One person who did say something about it a long time ago was the actor Tom Cruise. All the way back in 2005, he had a very famous appearance on the Today Show. You may remember it,
2: here it is. Here we are today, where I talk out against drugs and psychiatric abuses of electric shocking people mm-hmm. okay, against their will, of drugging children with them not knowing the effects of these drugs. Do you know what Adderall is? Do you know Ritalin? Do you know now that Ritalin is a street drug? Do you understand that? Aren't there examples, and might not Brook Shields be an example of someone who benefited from one of those drugs? All it does is mask the problem, Matt. And if you understand the history of it, it masks the problem. That's what it does. That's all it does. You're not getting to the reason why. There is no such thing as a chemical imbalance. Drugs aren't the answer. That these, these drugs are very dangerous. They're mind-altering, antipsychotic drugs. And there are ways of doing it without that so that we don't end up in a brave new world. So Cruz said a few things. One, maybe you shouldn't
1: trust the pharma companies and just hand your children whatever they're producing and hope for the best. Two, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance in your brain that causes depression. He said that. And three, these drugs mask the real problems. You're suffering for a real reason that drugs can't fix. Provocative statements. How did the country respond to this? Well, everyone in the media agreed. Tom Cruise is crazy. He's in a cult. Shut up. A lot of people thought that. We may even have thought that. But then more information kept coming out that made Tom Cruise look a little less crazy. In 2015, researchers from the scientific journal BMJ found that, quote, some birth defects occur two to three and a half times more frequently, a lot more frequently, among the infants of women treated with SSRIs early in pregnancy. Wow, that's a huge problem. Ignored. In the same journal in 2020, researchers found that, quote, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction is underrecognized and can be debilitating both psychologically and physically. Well, that's kind of a problem, too. If it steals your sex drive, maybe it's stealing your soul? Hmm, no, ignore it. Only cult members care. Then last year, researchers in Sweden found that, quote, there may be an increased hazard of violent crime during SSRI medication in a small group of patients. It may exist across age groups and throughout treatment periods, and it possibly persists for up to 12 weeks after treatment discontinuation. So even if you stop taking the drugs, you may be impotent, infertile, violent. But at least the drugs cure the chemical imbalance in your brain that causes your depression. That was the selling point. What a great piece of marketing that was. You've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. You need these drugs. And so hundreds of millions of prescriptions every year for these drugs. Well, in what seemed like news to us, last week we learned that actually SSRIs don't cure a chemical imbalance in your brain. So the acronym SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. The theory was, has been for 30 years, that depressed people have an imbalance of serotonin in their brains. They have a chemical imbalance. If you give them more serotonin, then they become less depressed and happy. They're less likely to kill themselves, right? Right. But it turns out that serotonin deficiencies are not the reason people get depressed. That's not just a guess, it's now officially science. This new finding comes from University College London, just completed a long and huge study on the relationship between depression and serotonin. It was published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. Here's what the lead author of that study, Joanna Moncrief said about the findings, quote, I think we can safely say after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin." What? That was the whole premise of the drug, which virtually the entire American population was taking, on their doctor's advice. And by the way, the drug companies made billions off those drugs. So first we were told that SSRIs would save lives. Now we learn they don't actually work as intended. In fact, the whole idea behind the drug was completely wrong. And yet, and here's the best part, people are ignoring this news and the drugs are still being prescribed. How can that happen in a country based on science? Well, as it turns out, and this is the real point, that happens all the time. On this channel just the other day, Tony Fauci, no less than Tony Fauci, admitted in public that actually... We have no idea what effect the COVID vaccines might have on women's fertility, on their menstrual cycles. Wait a second! Remember when suggesting that could get you bounced off of Twitter and Facebook as a conspiracy theorist? Well, it turns out it's true. Here's Tony Fauci.
3: There's been a, a number of studies. New York Times yeah. just did one about um, sure. menstruating cycles and how that is affected by vaccines. Yeah, though. well, the menstrual thing uh, is, is something that seems to be quite transient and, and temporary. That's the point. That's one of the points. We need to study it
1: more. Oh, we need to study it more. <laughs> we need to study it more. It's just like human fertility reproducing the species, the most important event in most people's lives. We need to study it more. Oh, but it's too late. We just forced millions of women to take that drug sorry. So how did they release a vaccine and then make it mandatory when they didn't understand the long-term effects of the drug? That's a very good question. Here's Deborah Birx. She's the former White House COVID response director again on Fox News.
4: I knew these vaccines were not going to protect against infection. And I think we overplayed the vaccines and it made people then worry that it's not going to protect against severe disease and hospitalization. It will. But let's be very clear. Fifty percent of the people who died from the Omicron surge were older, vaccinated.
1: What? Stop the quote. I knew these vaccines were not going to protect against infection. Really, Deborah Burks. But somehow you forgot to mention that as people were being fired from their jobs for not taking this on the premise that if they took it, they would never be infected. When do you get criminally charged? Soon, we hope. And then there's the effect of the COVID vaccines on the elderly, the population most at risk. According to The Lancet, no less than vaccinated people around Joe Biden's age are 80% more likely to become sick after taking the COVID shot as compared to unvaccinated people. Wait, what? 80% more likely to become sick after taking the shot that was supposed to prevent them from getting sick? How is this not the banner headline? It's being ignored. Well, as one scientist wrote in the Journal of Virology, quote, the study showed that immune function among vaccinated individuals eight months after the administration of two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine was lower than that among the unvaccinated individuals. So it's not just that your natural antibodies were more powerful than the vaccine. We've known that for a long time, though they lied about it. Turns out the vaccine appears to depress your immune system. This has massive implications, not just for COVID. There are all kinds of horrible diseases you can get with the suppressed immune system. The Journal of Food and Chemical Toxology found the same thing. Quote, Vaccination induces a profound impairment in type one interferon signaling, which has diverse adverse consequences to human health. What the hell? And yet these people are on TV blithely admitting, oh, well, we should do more study on that after we forced it on the entire American population, on billions of people globally. And this might explain how Joe Biden got covid after getting every available shot and telling us just a year ago that vaccines conferred total immunity. The various shots that people are getting now cover that.
5: You're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey,
1: folks, guess you heard. This morning I tested positive for COVID, but I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. So one of the response to this is great sadness, of course, because even people who didn't vote for Joe Biden believed his administration when they said this, because they were acting in the name of science. People were afraid of COVID in some cases with great justification. Some people were at risk of dying from COVID. And they reached out and accepted this drug on the promise, told to them repeatedly that it would save them. And you know, Deborah Birxman, so I knew it didn't really work. So the question is, why is no one being held accountable? Why is the party that promised to hold Big Pharma accountable ignoring this? They're not saying a single word about any of these lies from the pharmaceutical industry, which is making billions. And there's more. There's more. It turns out that Alzheimer's drugs, the most widely prescribed Alzheimer's drugs, don't actually treat Alzheimer's. You know, it does Viagra. That appears to work because in 2022, nothing's too weird to be true. But that's not what they're prescribing. In 2014, in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia, researcher Jeffrey Cummings found a 99% failure rate of Alzheimer's treatments in the pipeline for production. But he suggested that further treatments would be more successful. Well, how does that work? Because the new medications, Cummings wrote, would effectively target the proteins that form so-called sticky plaques in the brains of people who suffer from Alzheimer's. Just like a lack of serotonin was sought to cause depression, sticky plaques in the brain were thought to cause Alzheimer's. If you're interested in the subject, you've definitely read that. So these new drugs came out. They're very expensive. Did they work? No, they failed. Two new Alzheimer's drugs, one from the drug company Genentech, the huge biotech firm Genentech, the other from Biogen, were supposed to target sticky plaques. And they did. But here's what they didn't do. Fix Alzheimer's. They did nothing to affect Alzheimer's. Incidentally, the FDA approved Biogen's drug despite a 10-0 vote from the FDA's own advisory committee to reject it. What? So it turns out that the assumption about sticky plaque causing Alzheimer's is likely wrong. And the people running our public health establishment knew it was wrong, but ignored the fact it was wrong. And again, no one's being held accountable. The entire population trusts the science. If you want to make people distrust the science and go to the witch doctor rather than the pediatrician to treat their kid's flu, this is how you act. You lie, and then you never admit it, apologize, or hold the liars accountable. So the claim that sticky plaques caused Alzheimer's originated in a 2006 paper in the journal Nature, and it was written by neuroscience professor Sylvan Lesney. Recently, a Vanderbilt University neuroscientist called Matthew Schrag took a closer look at that 2006 paper. So did Science Magazine. What did they find? We're quoting, shockingly blatant fraudulent data, according to Donna Wilcock, who works on Alzheimer's at the University of Kentucky. Elizabeth Bick, a molecular biologist, reported reported that, quote, data might have been changed to fit a better hypothesis. Holy smokes. So how did the NIH, which is working with your money on your behalf to keep the nation healthy, how did they respond to this? Well, they awarded... That same scientist, a new grant to study Alzheimer's. And the Democratic Party, Farmer's new best friends, haven't said a word about it. Instead, they're finding new ways to send your cash to their donors. Here's a new trans admiral.
2: So we really want to, 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 to base our treatment and, uh, and to uh, affirm and to uh, support and empower these youth, not to limit their participation in activities the sports and even uh, uh, limit their ability to get gender affirmation treatment in their state.
1: So whatever you think of the trans question, kids struggling with questions about gender identity, notice the first thing that person says The salient point that person makes is that a drug can fix it. Really, more drugs. So the same people who had no clue what SSRIs did and then pushed them for decades, the same people who are making toddlers take the COVID shot despite the obvious risks and no data whatsoever to support giving it to toddlers, the same people who fast-tracked useless Alzheimer's drugs to the elderly are now telling you that kids with gender identity disorders must have more drugs. And the administration that promised to hold Big Pharma accountable cheers them on. Maybe at this point we should acknowledge that drugs are not the answer to every human problem. People are more than just a collection of chemicals that can be manipulated to produce a desired result. They're human beings. They have souls. If they're sad or sick or alienated from other people, it's just possible that Pfizer is not the solution. Now, Johan Hari has been saying this exact thing for a long time, shouting into the darkness, being ignored, having his books attacked in reviews. He's written a whole book about this exact subject called Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. We talked to him about this before, and we couldn't resist inviting him back on the eve of his vindication. Johan Hari, thanks so much for coming on. You've been saying for like a decade now that drugs are not the answer to depression how do you greet this news that you were right
6: look drugs can give some relief to some people they gave relief to me for a while but we've got to be really honest with people everyone watching knows they have natural physical needs right you 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 need food you need water you need clean air If if i took those things away from you you'd be in real trouble real fast but there's equally strong evidence that everyone has natural psychological needs you need to feel you belong you need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting people's deep underlying psychological needs and that is the reason why depression has been hugely rising and the issue i have is not so much with the drugs the drugs give some relief they cause some severe side effects for some people over time for most people but not everyone the effects tend to wear off but my issue isn't so much with the drugs my issue is with the story we tell that accompanies the drugs right we're giving people an inaccurate map of their pain when i went to my doctor and i was really depressed and i was a teenager i was told oh your pain is just a malfunction in your brain, right? You're lacking serotonin. All you need to do is drug yourself. And for me personally, what I needed to figure out was, you know, I had been severely abused when I was a child. I I had a lot of work to do on processing that, on on realising that I didn't deserve to be treated that way. Actually, it was only once I did that that I found my way out of depression, right? And so my issue is because I was told to distrust my brain, you know, I was told to. everyone watching. Your pain makes sense. Your depression and anxiety are not malfunctions. They are signals. They're telling us something. Now, not everyone was abused. Some people, there are scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in my my book, Lost Connections. And two of them are in our biology, although none of them are a chemical imbalance. But most of them are factors in the way we live. Think about loneliness, right? Depression and anxiety doubled in the last two years as we all became much lonelier. Now, that's completely common sense. Your grandma would have understood that immediately. Gee, grandma, do you think if you're really lonely, you're more likely Likely to be depressed and anxious. We've got to return to more common sense understandings of depression and anxiety. Most importantly, because they lead us to the real solutions. For example, here in Britain, there was a huge program of encouraging depressed and anxious people when they came to the doctor to first try taking part in gardening programs turned out to be twice as effective as giving people drugs because it was dealing with their loneliness when we understand what's really causing depression and anxiety we can get to the real solutions and that's what that that's what's so important your pain makes sense we need to stop insulting that pain and start listening to it because it's telling us something we really need to hear
1: i agree completely noan harry thank you so much great to see you tonight cheers tucker thanks I mean, the central fact of human life is that it ends. And a secular society that has no answer for what happens after death is absolutely certain to make everyone crazy and neurotic. So everyone's crazy and neurotic. Well, the Biden administration is trying to downplay the fact that we're heading into a recession, and they're downplaying it by just changing the definition of the term. Kind of amusing, kind of scary. All straight ahead.
0: Okay, hey, we'll keep an eye on uh, Tucker Carlson. What the heck is mental illness? And this is the best explanation that I've heard. It's uh, when your emotions and when you, when your mental life is maladaptive. So for example, I have a hand, I have a wrist, and I can hold a pen, I can open a bottle. Like My hand is working for me just fine. I can uh, lift up this water bottle, I could lift up a water bottle in every hand. I can use implements, everything that you would expect a human being to be able to do with his hand, with his wrist, I, I can do. All right. So my hand, my wrist working just fine. Now, what about your emotions? So let's say, let's say my best friend in the world came into the chat right now and said, Luke, I can no longer be friends with you you're a bad person, you're an evil person, you're a big fat jerk, right? I would feel devastated. I would feel so sad. I would have all the symptoms of depression for hours, for days. It might even last two, three weeks. But if I was still depressed six months later, right, that would be a maladaptive response. All right. The loss of my best friend in the world, a normal, healthy response to that is to feel devastated, to, to feel incredibly sad. And so such sadness, all right, after 12, 13, 14 weeks, it could be medicalized with, with drugs. It could get a, a clinical diagnosis of depression. But my, my sadness would be adaptive because... Depression serves an evolutionary function. It gets us to slow down, right? It it uh, encourages to put our life on pause, to ruminate and to reflect on our choices. Like, how could I have, for example, how could I have alienated my, my best friend in the world? Like, what could I possibly have done to make him think that I'm evil? So, taking time out, feeling sad, getting introspective, that's an adaptive response. And in, in that pause, I could then think about new ways of living my life going forward and kind of playing them out in my head. How, how would it all work out? So taking a pause, reflecting, introspecting, trying to figure out what was my role in, in my sadness and in the loss of this valuable friendship, right? That's all adaptive. Now, if I am still in that state of putting my life on pause six months later, a year later, two years later, obviously, that's a maladaptive response. So let's say I, I have a girlfriend, we've had a terrific uh, four month relationship. And she sends me a text message right now 40. We're done. I never want to see you again. And I'm going to tell all your friends what a big fat jerk you are. Okay, I would be sad. I would be shocked. I would introspect. Uh, I wonder, like, what the heck is going on here? And I'd be sad for hours, for, for days, maybe even three, four, five weeks. But if I was still moping around six months later, that would be a maladaptive response. So let's say I, uh, you know, I invested in the stock market, and let's say I invest ten thousand dollars in the stock market, and today, let's say I lose fifty percent of that. All right, I should be sad right? There'd be a mild level of shock. There'd be tremendous disappointment, right? But if I'm still moping about that loss uh, nine months down the track, a year down the track, that would be a, a maladaptive response. So let's say that my my Orthodox Jewish community was was precious to me, and one particular synagogue in my Orthodox Jewish community like, sent me a message, we don't want you coming by anymore, right? That would make me very sad, I should pause my life. I should introspect. I should wonder where I went wrong. And and that sadness, I would expect it to hang over me for, for days, even weeks. But if I'm still moping nine months down the track, obviously that would be a maladaptive response. So what we've done is we've medicalized ordinary human sadness. Right, there, There's a time and a place for sadness, for depression, for introspection. And... There are definitions in the, in the DSM-5 where after a certain number of weeks where you have this tremendous sadness, that therefore you now have a medical illness. So
1: recession is not just a state of mind. It is a measurable condition into which an economy falls. And here's how it has always been defined by economists. Recession is two consecutive quarters of declining real GDP. In the first quarter of this year, GDP went down. This week, second quarter, GDP numbers will be released. What will they tell us? Well, here's a hint. The White House just released a statement, quote, While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Really? Okay. Well, we thought we would talk to someone who has seen a lot of business cycles, been in business. Vivek Ramaswamy is executive chairman and co-founder of Strive Asset Management, which is a fascinating new company. He joins us tonight. Uh, Vic, thanks so much for coming on. So you're in business.
2: Um, What do you think of this new definition of a recession? Look, it's like George Orwell, who said it best, right? The best way to control a society is to control its language first. And just like diversity is conformity, inclusion is exclusion, war is peace... Now, apparently, a recession is something other than two consecutive quarters of GDP decline. Now, the thing I'll tell you, Tucker, is most sophisticated investors in the market have already quietly accepted the fact that we are in a recession, regardless of what this administration says. Investors pay attention to companies' earnings, just like at Walmart's disastrous report earlier today, where they slashed their profit expectations for the future. So investors aren't really going to pay attention to what the administration says. They know what's really going on. But the thing to pay attention to here is that it's not just the recession that matters. We are also facing rampant nine plus percent inflation. And in the market, you can either have recession without inflation. You could, in principle, have nine plus percent inflation without a recession. It's a double whammy for us right now. We're facing both. And meanwhile, the people in charge of this administration are focusing on changing the language that tells you a bit about where their priorities are. So the Walmart statement suggested—they
1: they said recession is the reason that their earnings will be short. But they suggested that maybe real recession is higher than 9%. What do you think that the real—the actual experienced number is for people?
2: Well, I, I, think, I think if you look at who the everyday customer is at Walmart relative to a range of other businesses that may be more insulated by other forms of government subsidy or protection— this is where the everyday American shops, right? So I think that you have to look as a, as a sophisticated market observer, you got to look at where the real harbingers are and where the real proxies are for the experience of the everyday American. And I think that the real experience of inflation combined with inflation that's driven by actually high energy prices in this country suggests that yeah. actually the experience of most Americans is even worse than the numbers suggest. But this yes. administration's just fixated on these band-aid solutions, like focusing on the language we use to describe it rather than addressing the problem.
1: Of course, Vivek
2: Ramaswamy, a man who is addressing problem. We will
1: see you again. Uh, Appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you. Thank you. So we've sent many billions of dollars to Ukraine because their border security is so important, unlike ours. But now the government of Ukraine is trying to impose censorship in our country. Anyone who disagrees with the policy toward Ukraine is working for Putin. That's their new position. We'll speak to someone after the break. Two people, in fact, who've wound up on Zelensky's Blacklist. An amazing story after the break.
0: Okay, there was a terrific 2007 book called The Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder. And my life was positively turned around by psychiatric medication. So I was basically bedridden in my 20s, and then I... I, found a woman who took me to her psychiatrist in orlando florida and he got me on a medication called nardil n-a-r-d-i-l and absolutely turned my life around from being bedridden to being two thirds functional and i was able to get back much of my normal life now six years down the road from going on nardil i was able to completely go off it without any ill effect so just because it seemed to work for me doesn't mean that i'm prescribing it for you or for anyone else what uh what worked for me far better than Nardil was starting to take uh, beef organ capsules. I mean, I started feeling stronger within two weeks. I was able to start working out twice as much. My life dramatically turned around just from taking beef organ capsules, but that's just my own <clears throat> individual <laughs> experience. So, terrific 2007 book here, Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder by <laughs> a couple of uh university professors, Alan Horwitz and Jerome Wakefield. And they they say that uh, sadness is frequently a normal, natural, and healthy response to life, right? It's normal to have sad feelings, difficulty sleeping, inability to concentrate, reduced appetite. When you've suffered loss, this could be financial loss, the loss of a spouse, loss of a parent, loss of a friendship. It doesn't have to be someone dying. But just the end of a bond, right? Some profound loss, the loss of a dream, loss of your ambition, right? Loss of a project that you're working on, all right? A normal reaction is to feel sad. That doesn't make it a depressive disorder. So contemporary psychiatry confuses normal sadness with a depressive mental disorder because it ignores the context in which these symptoms arise. Now, like all professions, psychiatry right, wants to expand its influence, expand its power, expand its status and prestige, and expand its abilities to make money. So the more people it can convince have a psychiatric disorder, the more people it can treat, and the more people it can make money off of, particularly in conjunction with big pharma. And I'm not knee-jerk anti-Big Pharma. I'm not knee-jerk pro-Big Pharma. I think Big Pharma frequently saves lives. And I think Big Pharma frequently damages lives. So I'm kind of right down the middle, right? So there's this psychiatric diagnosis of major depression. And it's all based on the assumption that symptoms alone indicate that you have a mental health disorder, right? So this psychiatric assumption says that normal human responses to stress and to loss are symptoms of a mental health disorder, right? It's it's absolutely absurd. And as for antidepressant medication, I've been banging on about this f- for years. There's a, a psychiatrist at Harvard University, and he wrote this book, The Emperor's New Drugs, came out about uh, 2008. And he's been studying antidepressants at that time for about 15 years, right? So he began his work in 1995. His main interest was in the effects of placebos, and they compared various treatments for depression with placebos, right? They, they compared psych, psychotherapy with no medication. They found, uh, they tried just uh, medication without psychotherapy. Overall, they find placebos three times as effective as no treatment and that antidepressants are only marginally better than placebos. So, placebos were effectively 75% as effective as antidepressants. Now, when drug companies seek approval from the FDA to market a new drug, and I'm reading an article here from the New York Review of Books, June 23, 2011, by Marsha Engel, who used to be the head, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. So, this isn't some crank, right? So, when Big Pharma wants to market a new drug, they must submit to the FDA or clinical trials they have sponsored. And these are usually double blind and placebo controlled. So patients are either randomly assigned drugs or placebos. Now, patients are told early they will receive an active drug or a placebo. They're also told of any side effects they might experience. And so if they can find two trials that show the drug is more effective than placebo, the drug is genuinely, generally approved, right? But companies can sponsor as many trials as they like most of which can be negative that is fail to show any effectiveness all they need is to positive trials right and let's go to tucker
1: in the biden administration we have sent billions to ukraine to protect their borders even as we have opened our own to the world why are we doing this exactly well as joe biden has told us repeatedly doing as winston churchill imitation we're doing it to protect democracy but of course the irony here is Ukraine is not a democracy in any recognizable sense. The Ukrainian government has banned media outlets that are hostile to it. They've also shut down opposition parties. They arrested the main opposition leader. That's a democracy. So because we allowed that to happen, in fact, we funded it all, now the Ukrainian government has decided that they can impose censorship in our country. The Ukrainian government has issued a blacklist of so-called Russian propagandists, Americans. That list includes Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, Tulsi Gabbard, who's serving in the U.S. military, and Glenn Greenwald, among many others. So we thought we'd speak to a couple of them. Starting off tonight, Glenn Greenwald, he's an independent journalist. His work is on Substack, among other places. Glenn, thanks so much for coming on. So you're, you're being blacklisted by the Ukrainian government, which is a beacon of democracy. Tell us how this works.
7: Yeah, I mean, I thought President Zelensky had a war to run. Apparently he has a lot of time to watch the Morning Joe show on MSNBC where they sit around for hours accusing everybody they want to discredit of being a Kremlin agent and teaching American liberals how to do the same. You know, it's easy to mock, but it's actually quite outrageous, Tucker. The Ukrainians have a conflict with this neighboring country in Russia. They're totally free to pursue whatever war policies they want. They yes, can fight Russia for the next 10 years if they choose. But that's not what they're doing. They're begging and, in a sense, demanding that other countries, including my own, the United States provide them with a seemingly endless supply of weapons and money, which means we not only have the right but the obligation to debate that and ask whether that's in the interest of the American people to do. And so for Zelensky to essentially try and export the repression he's imposed in his own country here to the United States by shutting down debate and accusing those of us asking questions of being Kremlin agents or Russian propagandists is takes incredible gall while he's also demanding that we turn
1: over all our money and weapons to him at the same time. This is the guy George W. Bush described as the George Washington of our age. I haven't heard really anybody in Washington say a single word about this. Yeah,
7: I mean, you know, from the beginning, as you know, as as well as anybody, Tucker, there was a very concerted effort to eliminate all space to ask any questions. Anyone who asked the question of whether we should do more to prevent the war diplomatically like Tulsi Gabbard or whether we should risk our own money and and a potential nuclear exchange with Russia over Ukrainian border disputes got called a Kremlin agent or a Russian asset. And this is the strategy that they're using to try and prevent us in the United States from exercising our freedom. to debate what
1: role our government should play in that war exactly in the name of democracy they shut it down Glenn Greenwald thank you so much for that thanks Tucker so Tulsi Gabbard is also on this blacklist she's also someone the Ukrainian government says should be censored she serves in the US military she served in the United States Congress she ran for president now she's joining us and we're happy that she is Congressman thank you so much for coming on what's your reaction thanks. to finding yourself on this blacklist
4: I see the hypocrisy, Tucker, the hypocrisy of this blacklist is, and frankly, why the American people should care about this is the Biden-Harris administration and the Washington elite from both parties are continuing to be willing to impoverish the American people and people around the world and push us closer and closer to nuclear war and Holocaust, all to protect democracy and defeat autocracy in Ukraine. And all of this is happening as uh, the Ukrainian president is frankly exposing that there is no democracy in Ukraine. You mentioned a few examples of some of the things that he's doing in silencing any dissenting voices, imprisoning political opponents, banning all political activity from the 11 opposition parties, uh, frankly, taking control of all national media under his unified information policy. And now he's turning his sights on Americans, not only uh, myself and others you've mentioned, but a sitting U.S. senator. Uh, The the danger of this, again, uh, goes to the cost that our leaders are willing to exact as they continue this facade of a a push for so-called democracy and defeat autocracy. The whole thing is so hypocritical, and we need to hold our leaders accountable for it.
1: I couldn't agree more. I have to ask you, since you served in Washington uh, for years, I know you were not generally aligned with Steve Bannon, or at least in the public mind. But you watched him get convicted last week of contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the January 6th committee, while many others, Eric Holder, Lois Lerner, have not been put on trial for ignoring subpoenas from the Congress. What's your reaction to this?
4: It shows the double standard in Washington, but more dangerously, it shows how this administration is so willingly weaponizing our Department of Justice to act as their own personal political hit squad and going after political opponents and turning a blind eye to people on their own team. This is incredibly dangerous because when you look at what's at the heart of our democracy, it is the rule of law. It is our ability as Americans to be able to trust that these public institutions are serving the public interest and not favoring whoever's in power versus who's not in power, that no matter our political affiliation— how we use our free speech, the color of our skin, how we worship, none of these things should matter because we should have faith that our justice system will treat us equally and fairly across the board. This weaponization of the Department of Justice is incredibly dangerous and sets a dangerous precedent that, that undermines this very foundation of our democracy.
1: You served in the Congress as a Democrat. When the Washington Post started attacking you, I started paying very close attention to what you were saying. Why why do they dislike her? Because you're a person of principle, that's why, and they hate that. I appreciate you coming on tonight. Tulsi Gabbard, as always. Thank you. So equitable policing, that's the latest fad. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means homeless people living in tents in front of your house. More on that straight ahead.
0: Okay. There's so much nonsense there. There's absolutely no contradiction between having a democracy and banning certain forms of speech. Democracy means that, that people get get to vote get to vote for their leaders. People can vote and effectively support the suppression of all sorts of rights. There's nothing about having a democracy that means you have a right to practice your religion. Right? People can vote democratically to ban your religion. Right. So this nonsense that there are all these inalienable rights that go part and parcel with democracy is a complete confusion of democracy. Democracy means majority rule, which is kind of the, almost the opposite of having inalienable rights. If you have inalienable rights, that means you're limiting democracy, that people cannot vote to take away certain of your rights. So this notion that we ha- were born with inalienable rights, that's liberalism, right? That's classical liberalism it's not democracy in many ways it's the opposite of democracy so when we had the bill of rights at the founding of the united states of america those rights represented a sharp limitation on democracy all right so freedom of speech freedom of religion right all the all those freedoms all right they limit democracy so A lot of nonsense and foolishness there. And then this idea that there's autocracy and democracy. Well, guess what? All democracies contain considerable elements of autocracy. So a policeman can effectively arrest you and behave very much like a dictator towards you. You effectively have to do everything that a policeman commands you to do. If you have a job, you are effectively a slave to your boss, right? If you have a full-time job, you are effectively a slave 40 hours a week and i'm not saying being a slave is a bad thing i'm saying being a slave is an inevitable part of human of being a human being right being a slave is an inevitable part of life if you have a job you're a slave to your boss if you're married There's a degree to which you are a slave to your spouse. If you have kids, to a degree, you are slaves to looking after your kids. If you belong to your religious community, you have sacrificed some of your freedom and autonomy to belong to your community. Any meaningful, deep connection you have with someone, there is an element of slavery in it. If you believe in something, if you have a moral code, you are a slave to that moral code. If you have an ethos, if you have a spirituality, if you have a, a religious practice, right you are slaves to those codes and those practices There's no getting away from slavery, and there's no dramatic division between autocracy and democracy. All democracies contain considerable elements of autocracy and guess what? Autocracies contain many elements of democracy, right Nikita Khrushchev, leader of the Soviet Union, he was removed from power after the the nuclear crisis with the United States because his peers didn't think that he was a very effective leader and uh, Tucker Carlson's got really bad epistemics I mean he has no clue what uh, medical science uh, articles have meaning and purpose I mean he keeps citing this this article by Peter McCullough the the anti-vaccine crank that was published in this anti-vaccine publication it was published with, with people who have absolutely no, no training or expertise in in virology or assessing the effectiveness of vaccines. And, and Tucker just, you know, brings him on, right, because, whoa, it's the Food and Chemical Toxicology Journal. Wow, that sounds really serious. All right, so the first author of this paper is a MIT scientist, right, a computer scientist. Right, she started a second career of finding different causes for autism, vaccines, painkillers, and weed killer. All right. she doesn't seem to understand when you're proposing three different explanations for autism in the same paper, That there's no reason to believe any of them. All right. So one month before this crank paper was submitted, the handling editor, right, a Spanish toxicology professor, issued a call for papers on potential toxic effects. Of COVID 19 vaccines. He stressed for him, research on long term toxic effects is undoubtedly an issue of special interest. So, yeah, Peter McCullough and his friends swiftly delivered. Now, people who actually know something like Jacques Robert, an emeritus professor of oncology at the University of Bordeaux, wrote in a, a letter to the journal's editor in chief, You know, where would you publish this nonsense? It cannot be considered a scientific paper. It's a militant agitational tract. The last author, Peter McCullough, is already known for his anti-vaccine presuppositions. One of his recent papers had to be retracted. Let's go back to Tucker. Joe Biden
1: mandated equity throughout the United States. You probably didn't know what that word meant. What is equity? Well, it means drug addicts get to use your front lawn as latrine. Watch this Kalamazoo City Commission meeting from Michigan. Watch.
4: We have very aggressive, um, unstable panhandlers, um... They are aggressive toward business owners. They are following people into those parking ramps. Um, And, you know, people have to clean up uh, where they have defecated right in front of your door of your business.
1: So according to Kalamazoo Commissioner Chris Pradell, equity means drug addicts get to defecate wherever they want.
8: One thing a lot of people don't realize is a misdemeanor... Uh, is for life, as much as a felony. And so many things come with a a permanent record on somebody's record. Uh, Anything from a job to access to education, if you're here illegally or even legally, can be deported. But I really think this is the right thing if we we want to do if we want to create a a truly more equitable community and and, uh, laws that are uh,
1: uh, the punishment meets the crime. Yeah. Let's hope they're defecating on his front lawn right now. Jason Rance is a radio show host in Seattle. He's been on this story because he lives near Portland, Oregon. Jason Rance, good to see you tonight.
9: Yeah, good to see you. Communities in Portland are being terrorized thanks to an equity-focused homeless plan that's helped lead to a surge of open-air drug dealing, theft, squatting, sidewalks and lawns being used as toilets, and the tents keep popping up. As of July 17th, the city had at least 668 active homeless encampments. Residents are unsafe, and it's put a strain on the business community, though I guess in fairness there's at least one business that's thriving, and by business I mean a homeless woman charging other homeless people $200 a month to stay at an encamp called Grace's Oasis. It's on city-owned land, but the city isn't intervening. Where do they get the rent? The owner of the neighboring RV storage park is dealing with stolen catalytic converters and RV break-ins, so that might be a hint. Now, as this crisis worsens... Where is our homeless czar Jeff Olivet? Remember him? He's supposed to be tackling this crisis. So I did some research. It turns out he's very hard at work pretending to tackle the problem. His agency just released principles for addressing encampments. And it says we shouldn't sweep until we have free housing or at least low barrier shelters, which means they can live rent free while still using. So Olivet has been totally useless, though perhaps he can form a supergroup with singer-songwriter Anthony Blinken, our secretary of state. Turns out that Olivet is also an amateur musician.
10: Take a look at this. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way.
9: The obstacle in his way is a homeless guy passed out with a needle in his arm, sleeping in a stolen sleeping bag.
1: But not sleeping in his house. I didn't see a single drug addict yeah. defecating in the background there in his apartment. Why doesn't he let them live with him? I think the equitable thing to do would be to open up his apartment to the homeless. Totally let
9: them run totally off.
1: Whoa, what the hell was that? Strongly agree. Jason Rance, on a high note. Unfortunately, we just lost the signal. Thank you. Great to see you. And we will be right back.
0: Wait, I thought that was a really good song. I I mean, I I disagree with Jeff Olivet about uh, homelessness, but he's a really good singer. Can someone get me links to to more of his songs? I I think they're they're quite catchy. And, I mean, awesome job, dude. I mean, far better singing than than I could do. Wow. I, I mean, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Good job. Okay, so... Uh, Tucker Carlson just has has like J F Garapi. All right, J F Garapi was like citing this study that completely changed his mind about vaccines. He, he realized how bad they were for your health. And it was just by a bunch of anti-vax activists who had absolutely, you know, no credentials, no no learning, n- nothing that establishes their expertise in the field. So Peter McCullough, he he publishes some crank paper along with a bunch of other cranks, right? Second author, Greg Nee, is a member of the so-called Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians. All right? He's part of an anti-vaccine lobby. All right, this paper does not reach the standards of scientific paper. Several assertions in the introduction are given without reference. Emotional words such as aggressively are used to describe the most reasonable attitude of all governments of all countries toward vaccination. The argumentation relies on hypotheses, not facts. The adjective potential is used 27 times, the adverb potentially 9 The graphical abstract presents a series of pathways leading from vaccines to cancer as if they are experimentally validated. I mean, just absolute nonsense. And then as for Lancet, all right, this is what it says. Tucker was just quoting Lancet selectively, right? The effectiveness of a fourth dose, right? The effectiveness of vaccines. What's the global impact of the first year of COVID-19 vaccination? All right. So what does the Lancet conclude? Vaccinations for COVID have so far prevented 14.4 million deaths from COVID in 185 countries. This estimate rises to 20 million deaths from COVID averted when we use excess deaths as an estimate of the true extent of the pandemic. This represents a global reduction of 63% in total deaths during the first year of COVID vaccination. We estimate that 41% of excess mortality was averted. In low income countries, we estimate that 45% of deaths could have been averted had the 20% vaccination coverage target been met. Right. So millions and millions of lives have been saved by COVID, according to Lancet. Right. So Tucker seizes one sentence out of a recent edition of Lancet magazine because he's on some bizarre anti vax kick. I mean, really poor epistemics bro right what the heck's going on with millennials i mean you know i was thinking about the
5: uh stereotype of i guess gen zers and millennials as being snowflakes there was an article another article about how much pressure these skaters are under and how they just crack and say look this isn't worth it and so on and then there's naomi who's what's the name of the tennis player who kind of did that for a while and i was just thinking i mean well first of all it's kind of funny when people say this generation they're just not tough well if that's true, I mean, why is it? There must be a reason, right? They they, they had the same genes we had, like, what in the environment is changing it? And I do, and this is not an original thought, but I just think social media is so transformative. I mean, you know, athletes used to have a lot of time when they just weren't in the limelight. You know, it's right, like.
8: They could be surrounded by their posse. Encourage Whatever. you to yeah, be yeah, being right. supportive. Yeah.
5: Right. It, it's like it was a different world. I mean, you remember back when Nancy Kerrigan, that weird case, the ice skater Nancy Kerrigan, when she sure. was assaulted by a guy apparently on behalf of her rival Tanya Hardy? Sure. Walks up and bangs her knee with a right. pipe or something? They made a movie about that recently. Right. And there are people who claim that Tanya was innocent, but I, I, I'm skeptical. But anyway. The movie did not say that. The – the uh, You just think back to that world. I just imagine, like Nancy Kerrigan, life for her was like she she just wasn't on stage all the time. I mean, even. Even me it's like I wake up and you and you like check your vital signs. I can see yeah. I, and not you know not everybody has a podcast and a newsletter, but still in in olden times, a journalist didn't wake up and check their vital signs. You can go and check and see if you've got more subscribers I thought
8: I thought that was what you did in the village that was in the environment of evolution. your first thing you would get up is you'd walk around and check on your social status in the community see if I you were still, still on good like, terms with you, yeah, yeah, uh.
5: No, but that—that's—that's that's the. Now point. you check that, it on Twitter. That kind of so. thing didn't vary wildly, and it didn't change overnight. I mean, if somebody, you know, you—you you would. I—I I, I mean, that's the thing: is is the world of thirty years ago was different enough from a hunter gather environment? But this is fucking crazy. Um, that could be it, or it could be that the stakes are much higher.
8: Does anybody succeed? Is anybody at the top of this sport and has fun doing it?
5: That's, oh, I think there are athletes who have fun. Um, the, uh, but I mean, and and probably at the top, at the very at the top. top. I don't know. I mean, the amount of dedication it now takes to be the best or near the best. It's like it's interesting that, uh, you know, both Novak Djokovic, who, by the way, is now saying if France sticks with its vaccine rules, the ones that I think are in place now, he won't play in the French Open.
0: Okay, let's uh, go back, see what Tucker is talking about. And uh, then got some uh, Richard Spencer quotes about how we need a totalitarian national security state. That's uh, Richard Spencer calling for a totalitarian state. So in woke
1: liberals take control of anything, disorder is the first symptom. So the main effect of having Joe Biden in charge is a massive increase in violent crime across the country. For a new episode of Tucker Carlson Today, we spoke to crime expert Rafael Manguel about the effects of this crime on poor communities. He's just written a book about policing. It's out tomorrow. It's called Criminal Injustice. What's the push for decarceration and de-policing gets wrong and who it hurts most? Here's part of our conversation.
11: Crime is really not something that everyone feels equally. And if you say you are for vulnerable communities, I don't see how you don't prioritize enforcement and incarceration of people who consistently flout societal norms. Um, Because the people who are going to bear the brunt of the downside risk associated with that policy agenda are precisely the people living in low-income minority communities that have, frankly, enough to worry about. I don't think people fully appreciate just how difficult it is just in terms of the psychological and emotional burden of living in a truly high crime area in a pocket of truly concentrated crime in the United States, places like, you know, the Austin neighborhood on the, on the West side of Chicago or Humboldt park, or, you know, the, the Southwestern district of Baltimore, you know, some of the, the precincts in, in cities like Detroit and Louisville, um, that, that, just saps an entire community's ability to be productive. You can't think about all the other things that you need to think about in order to lead a successful life if you cannot take for granted that you're going to be safe when you leave the house. Um, And so that's why this is just, I think, so important and so destructive when we dismantle the systems that have been proven to produce the kind of safety that we've seen produced over the last 25, 30 years that we're now starting to see get eroded.
1: Sad story, great conversation. It's on Tucker Carlson today, airs 7 a.m. tomorrow, Fox Nation. So there's one thing we know about Eric Swalwell of California. He's always moving. You can't hold him back. When he's not having weird sex with Chinese spies, which he has done, he's posing shirtless while riding camels in Qatar. Last year, Swalwell's international street cred took a bit of a hit, however. He was caught spending tens of thousands of dollars on a luxury hotel in California where his wife worked. And we thought, really? You've got all this dough and you stay that close to home? please. But he may have heard our thoughts. He is off around the world. Eric Swalwell, according to Fox Digital, Swalwell's campaign managed to spend more than $38,000 on travel expenses between May and June 30th. 3500 of that went to the, quote, iconic Ritz in Paris. In France, the campaign also spent big at other destinations in France, including Le Café Marley, so rest easy, international women of mystery. Take heart, fang fang. Eric Swalwell is back in play, shirtless on another camel. We'll be keeping track of Eric Swalwell's international travels. We have the data. But for tonight, we're out of time.
0: Okay, so I remember when I was bedridden for much of my 20s, a lot of people would tell me, you know, you might have a chemical imbalance in your brain, you really should try antidepressants. And it's probably a good idea because I was trying everything at that point if there wasn't a big downside for trying them out. But there are significant downsides for for using many SSRIs. We do know that it does reduce white matter in the brain. And the less white matter you have, the less uh, mentally sharp you are. So it does definitely come with downsides. For some people, I'm sure it works effectively. But a lot of these easy descriptions like, you know, balancing the chemicals in your brain. It, it reminds me of what chiropractors used to t- tell the the reason for getting chiropractic adjustment. It's like when you've got a kinked hose, you just need to unkink the hose and then the water will flow more freely and effectively. And so when we adjust your back, we're just allowing, you know, the life force to flow through you more effectively. So this was a very common example used by chiropractors for decades but uh, the the more educated ones have largely abandoned it because it is bogus all right let's uh, get a little bit more here from mickey cows and robert wright on millennials right. he, if, if if
5: if that's a criterion at wimbledon he won't be there which is mind-blowing um but i was just going to say you know he and tom brady both candidates for greatest of all time uh they are both obsessive about what they put in their bodies. And I think both are gluten free. I mean you should think I am we should both think about going gluten free, uh Mickey, if if it works for Tom Brady and and Djokovic. But uh and you know these guys, I mean Brady's obsessive about going to bed at the same time. And they just I I he just works nonstop. It's it's just the amount of discipline I'm sure he has R and R, but uh I I don't know. It, It is different. I mean the days of uh the days of Joe Namath are over.
8: Um, uh, uh, huh. Well, okay. Did you actually watch the Olympics? I pride myself. I, I pride myself on totally ignoring it.
5: Uh, I checked in a night or two. I mean, it's it's interesting when I do. It is interesting. I just haven't had the time, you know, because um, I, I want to be the greatest of all time. So I'm working twenty four seven.
8: Right there, you go. Um, the uh, the my line is sort of. why well, I one hundred percent when eighty percent is good enough. So, but I'm changing that, Bob. Um, so um, the answer well, is in,
5: in which direction you're going to ninety uh, seven? I'm trying to go up.
8: But my, you know, my 100% of me is not the same as 100% of me 20 years ago. Can I help? Um, Can I help? Do you need a life coach? No, I probably do. Um, the the Epstein case, um, there was this, uh, you know, he, Prince Andrew was scheduled to go on trial being accused by-
0: Yeah, why don't we have congressional committees on Jeffrey Epstein? Let's find out about all the rich and powerful people he compromised.
8: Virginia Jeffrey, one of Epstein's girls uh, who claims that she had- uh, Forced to have sex with him, and she is one of the big name namers. She's named a whole bunch of people, uh, and the key—the key—what we want to know about Epstein now is: what are the names? Who are the big shots who were susceptible to blackmail? Whether you know by Epstein, whether on behalf of Israel or somebody else, he was selling the information to or giving the information to. Uh, who was compromised? And the names that are mentioned—I don't know if Jeffrey—they're all Jeffrey's names—but are the two big, the three big ones are Bill Gates, George Mitchell, and uh, Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton—you you sort of—it's a, a gimme. I mean, that's everybody's. Right, Jeffrey mentioned Clinton. Or no, you're saying those are three we want to know. Who did she mention? I'm going to get it wrong and libel somebody, but I'm pretty sure she mentioned either. I'm pretty sure she's the one who mentioned Mitchell. Somebody yeah. mentioned Mitchell. And Mitchell denies it. And, uh, and Gates, I assume, denies it. But, and there may be others. The point is that that might be the tip of the iceberg. We want to know them all. And, and there, there is a trial uh, against Jelaine Maxwell. There were two trials going on. One was the Prince Andrew trial, and the other was the Jelaine Maxwell civil suit. And Jelaine had said, I'm not going to protect the names anymore. And the judge has, is deciding herself whether to, uh, you know, whether to release them. And what troubles me about the settlement, obviously Andrew settled because it was too embarrassing for the, for the queen, but is it also too embarrassing for all these other people? In other words, did he give Jeffrey millions and millions of dollars in exchange for a, a promise to drop the names from all her lawsuits, not just his lawsuit, but also the Maxwell right. lawsuit, so we'll never find out the names? That's the problem.
5: Why would Prince Andrew do that?
8: He'd be doing it on behalf of a, a, a bunch of people he who- would incur, to...
5: Incurring the enduring gratitude of all the important- No, they have contributed to, the to a settlement
8: fund. You know, the, he, he buys off Geoffrey for $20 million, and they contribute $18 million of it, okay? So you think he that's that's door a door. big bonus for him, and that's the perfect—that's the perfect way to squelch the names. so they aren't doing it directly. Andrew is doing it for them. Yeah. And if you're Jeffrey, you're—you know—you're certainly for Jeffrey's lawyer. You are under an obligation to take all the money you can. So you, um, I
5: mean, do you think he actually uh, crowdfunded it? Like he got a million from Clinton? No, I'm just
8: speculating. I'm speculating. There are all sorts of people who wanted want Jeffrey to shut up, and maybe they financed the settlement. It's I don't.
0: Yeah. We should, why? Why don't we have congressional hearings on this? It seems pretty important. And uh, that was from February of this year, Robert Wright, talking to Mickey Cowes. This is from a few days ago. This is my most offensive
8: idea, even more offensive than the dark turn that I usually go into. Um, I braced braced for it. Well, a lot of people point out that a lot of people who want Trump's endorsement uh, do not say that they do not accept the results of the 2020 election. They they sort of mouth at least some minimal thing about how the election was stolen or unfair or Trump really won. Or if you really want to give as little as possible, you say, you know, it was unfair the dice were loaded, by which you could might just mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg spent millions of dollars, uh, you know, making it easier to vote in Democratic strongholds, which isn't exactly stealing the election. Uh But uh, and uh everybody's sort of waiting for this to go away, for mm-hmm. Democrats, for Republicans to come to their senses and say, okay, we stopped saying the election was stolen.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: And why does it ever have to go away? Why can't it be like one of the pieces of bullshit at the center of a political party, you know, uh, and the, the offensive part is like you know, do you really think transubstantiation is real in the Catholic religion? Nobody's saying, well, I want the Catholics admit that that's not the body of Christ they're eating. Hasn't enough Catholics. time
5: passed since the Crucifixion, for <laughs> I <laughs> to admit it?
8: Uh, uh, You know, uh, people have their founding myths and, and, and beliefs that people have, and right. uh, and one of those for the Republican Party from now on for the next century might be that, uh, you know, Democrats stole the
5: 2020 election. Shouldn't be the end of the world. That would be interesting if it became like transubstantiation, like in the year 2323. People Our were father guard in Mar-a-Lago. And then did you see this? Uh, uh, the, the video where uh, one of the things that came up in the in the latest installment of the hearings was the video Trump is filming the video that he did the next day.
0: I think I think okay, but uh, g- good interesting point there by Mickey Kaus. All right, fascinating article on Axios: a radical plan for Trump's second term. So former President Trump's top allies are preparing to radically reshape the federal government if he is reelected, purging potentially 50,000 civil servants and filling these career posts with loyalists to him and his American first agenda. So this impact could go well beyond typical conservative targets, such as the Environmental Protection Agency and the Internal Revenue Service. So Trump allies working on plans that would potentially strip away many layers of the Justice Department, including the FBI, and reach deep into the National Security Intelligence State Department and the Pentagon. So during his presidency, Trump often complained about the deep state. Well, the head of this plan is derived from an executive order known as Schedule F, which was launched just 13 days before the 2020 election. And Schedule F makes it a lot easier to fire civil servants and potentially replace them with people who are loyal to Trump. Right, here is Tucker's keynote address at the Family Leadership Summit. its
1: ugliness. That is true. And no one wants to say it because like, I don't know, some libertarian think tank was paid to tell you that the dollar store is attractive? I don't think it is, actually. I don't think it is. Their model, the people in charge, have this kind of if I were to pick sort of their idea of beauty, it'd be like a dollar store next to multifamily low income housing spray painted with unintelligible slogans, right? That's not beauty. Their idea of beauty is like a female impersonator screaming at you. No. Beauty is nature. So you can tell me whatever you want about your commitment to the environment, but if you're destroying it with wind turbines, I'm sorry, I know a lot of people in Iowa make a lot of money from wind turbines, it's just true though. As an outdoorsman, like, really? You're not for nature. The Republican Party should be for nature. And not just in its aesthetics, not just in its design, but in its human relationships. People are born wanting certain things. I have four dogs, so I see this on display and they all sleep on the bed. (laughs) Four dogs, four children. Like, the one thing I get a lot of is watching genetics at work. (laughs) And I know that people and dogs behave most of the time out of impulses they were born with that they may not even fully understand, but that do not change. Period.
0: And that is true of all people, okay? All people. I've noticed that different dog breeds seem to have different, different gifts, right? There are just like two dog breeds that, that commit almost all the dog killing. And certain dog breeds are absolutely vicious. You know, other dog breeds tend to be gentle. Some dog breeds tend to be more intelligent than other dog breeds. So why could that also not be true for various groups of people?
1: So politicians who don't take
0: that into account are not serving
1: you at all. So if you know, i were advising a politician, I would say the first thing I would do, like, what is America? Well, America is a physical place. No, it's not an idea. Anyone who says America is an idea, please. It's not an idea. It's a place. I live there. I don't live in an idea. I don't live theoretically. I get out of bed and there's like a ground underneath me. There's like soil and trees. And I would say, you know, the left has captured the term environmentalist. And the entire environmental movement may be, I mean, I think it's probably the greatest scam I've ever seen on the most basic level. I'm not just saying I disagree with their politics, politics and policies, which I do. But even more basic than that, like how many people in the Sierra Club, you know, I don't know, could name three bird species? Or could tell the difference between a spruce and a half?
0: I mean, I don't disavow psychiatric drugs. I'm sure certain drugs at certain times for certain people Uh, help more more than they harm. Uh, For example, lithium has just saved thousands of lives. I I was on lithium for a while because I had some tendencies to be bipolar, and uh, lithium would just even me out. Now I drool a bit, I gained a lot of weight, right, but it really evened out my volatile emotions.
1: Hemlock. Anyone? Anyone? No. No one. Because they don't go outside. I'm not kidding. They don't go outside. So for them, they're like, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a new energy grid. Okay, It's a new energy grid. And, uh, and it's going to be a lot better. It's going to be a lot better for the environment. The energy grid is going to be way, way better. And no one ever says, OK, slow down, son. First of all, what's an energy grid? How how's that work exactly? In fact, be precise, if you would. How's the energy generated? How's it measured? How does it get from the point of generation to people's wall sockets? Do, do you know? Oh, you can't drive a standard transmission? No infrastructure for you. If you can't drive a standard transmission, you're not allowed near my infrastructure. Okay? You go back to the gender studies department and do your little thing and, like, fight with your colleagues over tenure or whatever, but you're not getting near physical things that are necessary to the survival of my country. Like, you are not allowed. We're walling that off. This is adults only. But they're able to think of these schemes that in fact destroy the environment. And by the environment, I mean the land because they don't care about beauty. What's beautiful? Is a wind turbine beautiful? No, actually. Rivers are beautiful. Gardenias are beautiful. Springer Spaniel faces are beautiful. Children are beautiful. The sky is beautiful. These are not things that people made. These are things that God made. And the Republican Party, must defend them not by acquiescing to their ridiculous climate change arguments which are absurd and i could bore you for hours on this <laughs> but by defending the land from those schemes from the no you you can't desecrate something you didn't build and that hill you did not build get your stupid wind turbine off there and slink back to new york And the Republican Party should be about nature in human relationships. And I won't go through it again. But the most basic desire of most people, not every single person, but of most people, the overwhelming majority of people, is to mate and have children and to perpetuate the species. That's not a desire that you were taught in college. People who've lived in total isolation come to that conclusion because it's not a conclusion. It's an instinct. That's nature. And anyone who tries to tell you that it's not, or tries to muddy the term sufficiently that people aren't even in touch with their own instincts or they deny their own instincts, I'm not really sure if I'm a boy or a girl. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's kind of the last thing that needs positive affirmation. I'm serious. I drank too much for many years. or someone said, well, that's just kind of the way you were born. I remember not being able to find my car outside 801 one night, many, many years ago. I'm not proud of it, but it's true. Thank God I wasn't able to find my car. But anyway, the point is, if someone had said to me, you know, it's just, that's how you were born. You were just born to have, you know, 11 vodka sodas.
0: Well, you can be born to have a predisposition. Uh, Tucker gave up drinking, I think, at about age 32. Ricardo says, Why is Tucker allowed on TV? Does he get the ad revenue? He gets the eyeballs, right? The big advertisers won't advertise, but he gets the eyeballs, a lot of people watching. And so it's a good opportunity for Fox to try to habituate people into watching their channel for other shows where they are able to sell advertising and also to get people to subscribe to Fox Nation. And he is just the most dominant pundit in the national conversation, which is also has its advantages for Fox, but no, directly his show doesn't make Fox money. It's
1: just who you are. No. That's not something that needs to be affirmed. The positive, the good, the calm, the placid, the orderly, the natural, that's what needs to be affirmed. And here's the last point that I will make. You need to be really wary of candidates who care what the New York Times thing you really really do no and I mean that and if you say that to Republican voters you are like well of course the New York Times is communist like I don't even read it really because your leaders do and they
0: really care so what if the New York Times is telling the truth in an article should you not care then about the truth just because you learn about it from the New York Times well What if uh, the New York Times is promoting something that's harmful or nonsense? uh, Should you not understand the influence of, of the single most influential news organization in the country? It's the most influential news organization in the country for elites. So why would you not care about what's going on there and how it is affecting our culture, how it's shaping our elites? Right, so sometimes the New York Times tells the truth, and sometimes it has exclusive insights into the truth. Why would you not welcome that? And when it is just pushing a left wing approach, if you're interested in the country and the world and what's going on with our elites, why would you not want to know where the elites are getting their information, where the elites are getting their arguments? why would you not want to know about what the elites are talking about even if you just primarily want to be effective in combating the, these left-wing trends i mean do you want to be effective or do you just want to vent right the attitude that the tucker is talking about here if if carried further you just end up screaming at the moon you know living in a cave right so if you are a genuine truth seeker you, you welcome truth from any source New York Times, the most important newspaper in the world. It sets the agenda for the world's elites. Why would you want, not want to know what's going on with the world's elites? Right? If the New York Times is publishing nonsense or something that's nefarious, why would you not be interested in understanding how the New York Times is influencing elites to believe in nonsense or falsehood or things that are seriously destructive? I mean, if you're serious about America, if you're serious about politics, why would you not want to understand why elites believe what they do? Right. This attitude, oh, why would anyone want to learn anything? Like why would anyone want to hear what the opposition is saying? Why would anyone want to understand what the most important people are paying attention to is just a formula for, for losing. So to say you shouldn't care about the New York Times, that's just a, a childish vanting, right? It, it makes you feel good to say it say it. it doesn't do good, it doesn't make you effective, it doesn't make you a better person, it doesn't make you more informed. But for many people, such as Tucker Carlson, frequently venting anger and contempt and disdain is far more important to them than the less heroic, less catchy, less emotional, but more important tasks of trying to understand reality, understand why people think the way they do, and understand how to navigate reality and to be effective, right? Right. There are situations where disdain, anger, contempt, and resentment serve you, all right? Very limited circumstances where they can power you and motivate you to do something, all right, in the moment. But aside from those limited circumstances, this kind of contempt does not serve you. They really,
1: really care. Now, how do you know that? They'll never admit it. And I'm sure many will come on this stage in the subsequent months, and they'll attack the New York Times and whatever. But they don't mean it. And I know they don't mean it because I watch them very carefully when things go sideways. That's how you know who someone is.
0: When You shouldn't overly care about the New York Times. You shouldn't overly care about Fox News. You shouldn't overly care about Tucker Carlson. You shouldn't overly care what Luke Ford thinks. You shouldn't overly care what uh, Richard Spencer thinks or Nick Fuentes thinks or what your rabbi or your priest thinks or your mother Right. You can care TOO much about what your mother thinks. You can care TOO much about what your spouse thinks. You can care TOO much about what your wife or what your kids think. You can care TOO much about what your mother-in-law thinks. You can care TOO much about what your boss thinks. But take this attitude out to, to the workplace. Like you should you should stop caring what your boss thinks. Obviously, that's a formula for for losing. You should stop caring what your spouse thinks. That's a formula for losing. You should stop caring at all what your closest friends think, what your neighbors think. All right. That's a formula for losing. All right. A little bit of nuance here. Right? Different relationships require different levels of caring. But with any relationship, even with a news source, a commentator, a you know, step-parent, an employer, a a girlfriend, right? You can care too much about anyone or anything, right? You're not served by caring too much and you're not well-served by caring too little. You want to care appropriately. I have a lot of relationships that are really important to me, but I don't shut down for fear of offending them. I do take them into consideration, all right? I want to preserve certain relationships that are very important to me. But the the relationships that are the most important to me, generally speaking, are with people to my right who have contempt for my subscriptions, the New York Times, the LA Times. Most of the people most important to me have contempt for COVID vaccines, right? So a lot of things that I believe in The people closest to me have absolute contempt for it. So do I stop believing in the things I believe in? Do I stop articulating the things I believe in to preserve the relationships most important to me? No, I don't. I'm willing to speak out. And if that offends my closest friends, I'm willing to take the hit. At the same time, I don't have no caring for my friends. right? I take them into consideration. You should take the New York Times into consideration. The FDA may say something that is worthy of being taken into consideration. You shouldn't care too much about what the FDA says. You shouldn't care too little. You shouldn't care too much about what your employer thinks. You shouldn't care too little. We need to care the right amount. What's the right amount? The amount that's adaptive, right? The amount that allows you to be effective and happy, right? What do you need to be effective and happy in the world? That's how much you should care.
1: Things get out of control unexpectedly. Mike Tyson. don't normally quote in public settings the ear-biting boxer did say one brilliant thing that has never left me and he said it about boxing but it applies to life he said everybody got a plan till you hit in the face and that is true everybody got a plan till you hit in the face
0: so this is matt taibbi longtime journalist for rolling stone here he's doing a video on the new york times as the american prompter and guess what at times in certain ways, the New York Times does resemble Pravda, right? The New York Times is frequently awful. Luke Ford is frequently awful. Ricardo is frequently awful. Matt Taibbi is frequently awful. Uh, Tucker Carlson, frequently awful. We are all frequently awful. We all have vulnerabilities and biases and huge blind spots. So, this is a good, interesting perspective. The New York Times is the American Pravda, and he's right. Right, there are ways that the New York Times functions as the American Providence. Does that mean that it never serves a purpose? That it that never has you know important articles in there? Of course not. Right, there should be you know multiple understandings of reality. Right, I have very deep flaws. That doesn't mean that there isn't a time and a place where I can shine. The New York Times has very deep flaws. There are times and places in that publication where it shines. Some of it's awful. Some of it's pretty good.
10: Seriously? Uh, you really now have to kind of read between the lines to understand, what are they really telling me?
0: Uh... You have to read between the lines when anyone tells you anything, right? What's their agenda? Uh, how much truth are they likely to have on their side? Like What are the influences upon them? Who are they trying to please? Right? Are, are they trying to manipulate you? Right? You need to understand every source of information, everybody and everything that you hear critically
10: uh, with these news stories. you know, Just just to take an example, the Times in the last uh, couple of weeks suddenly had this flood of stories about Joe Biden's health, uh, you know, with headlines like Biden is testing the limits of age and uh, infirmity or something like that. I forget what the headline read. Um, and, you know, is Biden too old to be president? You know, there were guest essays uh, and They hadn't done that for years even even these were all fertile topics to explore during the campaign but why are we getting it now well the real reason for that is you know if you know how the business works is that it's a bunch of people in washington who are probably in the democratic party who are probably calling these reporters and they want to put it out there that
0: okay so this is a youtube channel and hosted by a guy who's a socialist all right a big bernie sanders supporter and these are two lefties speaking, and these two lefties have some interesting points of view
10: you know we're we're throwing Biden overboard you know or, or we want to see how that goes over one or the other right uh, yeah. and that's it's it's just a different way to read the news than what we 're accustomed to in the states you know I think normally normally that's
0: that's a great point like why is it suddenly that the New York Times and then the other media following the lead of the New York Times is finally commenting on things that have been obvious for two years now that uh, Joe Biden is infirm. Like, why is it now coming out in the New York Times? Why weren't they talking about this more during the 2020 election
10: campaign? The subject would have been explored much more thoroughly during the campaign, and and now we get it at a different time.
3: You know what's interesting about that, Matt, is that not only wasn't it explored, during the primary, which, as you say, if the purpose of a newspaper like the New York Times was to inform the electorate, which is what we're always told in school, right? The the purpose of the press is to inform the electorate so that they can make knowledgeable decisions about who to vote for for president. The logical time to tell the people about any questions about Joe Biden's or anybody's uh, cognitive abilities would be during the election. The fact that we were not only not told, we were actually told that we were. Bad human beings for having any question about it. You quote a couple. I think Sully uh, Sullenberger, Captain Sullenberger. You mentioned a piece of his. i have forgotten about it until I read your piece about. Yeah, I stutter too. I dare you to quote. You know, it's kind of like uh, <clears throat> you're a piece of, you know crap. If you even bring up a Joe Biden stutter, you're the kid. You're the schoolyard bully making fun of the stuttering kid. If you question it, when in fact people
0: who qu- and uh, there's a question if my rabbi told me to unsubscribe from the New York Times what would I do I would not stop subscribing to any publication because uh, my my rabbi told me to do so there's no friend no relationship nobody could tell me to stop subscribing from any publication and I would then follow them like nobody gets to tell me what what I subscribe to
3: Question Joe Biden's cognition as I did uh, we're not doing so. I didn't question Joe Biden's cognition in two thousand and eight. I saw right. him occasionally stutter, but I actually thought he was a uh, smart in terms of you know he had a, he was fast with a one liner. His one liner about Rudy Giuliani, you know his favorite noun a verb in nine eleven. Right. Uh,
0: Biden was never smart. All right, he always talked way too much. He he as Steve Saylor keeps pointing out, he's very similar in personality to to Donald Trump, a very self aggrandizing you know, moderate, moderate intelligence.
3: A good line, you know, I mean, he could deliver a line. Um, I didn't have those problems back then, so I wasn't making fun of a lifelong stutter. I had concerns in 2018, those were not, or excuse me, uh, 2020, those were not, you know, stuttering concerns, that was something else. So, but I, you know, this idea that not only, uh, now he doesn't have a problem, we're not gonna report on the non-problem, and if you bring it up as if it is a problem,
0: so the New York Times isn't in my top five list of, of pleasures in life. It Probably isn't even in my top 10, but I'm pretty sure it's in my top 20. I really enjoy reading the New York Times. It's just a, a tremendous source of pleasure for me because I don't read the articles that drive you crazy, right? I don't read articles that drive me crazy. Like I tried to read their reporting on Russia Gate, and it just gave me a headache. So I, I read the book review, I read the culture articles, I I don't know, I just scan through it and I consistently find interesting material in there. Yeah, it's one of the top 20 things contributing to my life. It tends to have much better writing quality than the Wall Street Journal. And I can't think of any other newspaper that comes close. Yeah, I spend an hour a day reading newspapers. L.A. Times, I start with the Drudge Report, then I go to the L.A. Times, Steve Saylor's blog, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal, and then several times a week I'll check out Outside the Beltway and uh,
10: probably some other things.
3: You're ableist and a bad person. That is really groupthink, isn't it?
10: Yeah, it's it's really creepy, and as you say, it's it's kind of alien to the news mission. Theoretically, theoretically, we don't care, um, you know, whether whether or not he has um, what the what the political import of him, you know, possibly having a cognition issue would be. I think what happened during the campaign, and I know this because I talked to some of the people who were covering him. I followed him for a little while. Um, you know, they a lot of us saw him in two thousand and eight. We saw the clear difference. Uh, as you say, he was he was quick. Uh, he, uh, always seemed prescient, although he did sometimes have trouble speaking. Um, sometimes he would kind of accelerate unnecessarily or mm-hmm. his, uh, his emotional tenor would be sometimes not match the speech. Like, uh, it, the register would be angry when it was supposed to be inspiring. It would be off mm-hmm. somehow. Um, but in 2020, it was a completely different issue. Uh, it clearly had to do with, you know, things like not being aware of where he was, being unable to control.
0: And uh, there's a question. Chris Alton says, Look, are there any rabbinical debates regarding the holiness of the New York Times and the Talmud? No. But uh, I don't seek wisdom about the news from rabbis. I don't seek wisdom about history from rabbis. I seek wisdom about Jewish law from rabbis. Right? That's it. I, I don't look to rabbis for insights into anthropology, history, biology, the age of the earth, astronomy, politics. Uh, health, right? I, I don't want Talmudic medicine, right? If I'm sick or ill or injured, I don't want to go to a Talmudic doctor, right? There are a lot of uh, medical cures in the mentioned in the Talmud, described in great depth. I don't want any of them, right? I, I'm not looking for wisdom uh, for, for my health from the, the rabbinic tradition. I look to the rabbinic tradition for understanding how the Jewish people have evolved in different times and different places and uh, created a certain type of culture that I, I really enjoy being a part of and that, that I find interesting and frequently exciting and inspiring. But I don't look for wisdom outside of that from rabbis, and I don't expect rabbis to be, say, more moral, more you know, sexually chaste, uh, more honest, more upstanding than plumbers, all right? They are frequently deeply flawed and uh, frequently deeply learned in Jewish law. So I'm curious often what they have to say about Jewish law outside of their specialty. I don't necessarily look to them for anything else.
10: ...troll impulses like anger with people, um, you know, forgetting where he was in the middle of a sentence. It wasn't a speech issue, uh, although that I'm sure that complicated it, right? Um, but I think what a lot of the reporters are saying
0: Wow, Ricardo is really bringing it tonight. Would Luke rather be a Scientologist with a New York Times subscription or a Jew who's only allowed to read 4chan? They both seem like horrible alternatives. So I really enjoy being a convert to Orthodox Judaism because there's so much room for intellectual discussion. There, there are no topics that I can't talk about with you know Orthodox Jews that I know. I can talk about atheism. I can talk about Darwinism. I can... I can talk about punctuated equilibrium. I can talk about Christianity. I can talk about Islam. I can talk about fascism. Right? There's just tremendous intellectual freedom in, in the circles that I run in, and I resonate with that, and they develop and maintain and build community primarily on the basis of adherence to certain codes of behavior. So your mind is free to roam, as long as you you know follow the the dictates of the law, which is all about how you behave. So there are restrictions on my actions, but there are effectively no restrictions on what I think. And I love that.
10: I think to the, each other was, well, if we talk about this, then it's going to hurt his chances against, against Trump. And part of our mission now is to make sure that Trump doesn't win. So let's sit on this. But what ended up happening, you know, I think that ends up, becoming a a problem of credibility for the newspaper, uh, which makes it more difficult to report on things and have an impact on the public uh, overall.
3: Yeah. And I also think it's a dereliction of responsibility. And, you know, just to be clear, you know, in terms of my own, what our conflict of interest, although it's overstating the case.
0: Okay. This is an excellent 30 minute video. New York times is the American provider. Okay. We have here an 18 year old college student interviewing, Tucker Carlson, this is uh, Daniel Schmidt. Said
12: a lot of young people should be married. Now, I know you were married really young. Do you think young people... is Do you think there's something to being married young? You know, I think now we see the age of marriage keeps increasing increasing. Do you think there's some virtue to being married in your early 20s?
1: Do I think there's virtue in it? No, I I think it's the the greatest thing you can do. I mean, in general, I think... You know, one of the costs of having a really secular society, the really the first secular society at scale in human history, there's never been one uh, until recently in the West. And it obviously doesn't work. But one of the many downsides of that is that people ignore the fact that life ends. You know, there's no conversation about death. And so the effect of that is people just sort of imagine, well, you know, sort of do it at some point. No, no, no. You have very limited time here. So take a sober assessment of what you want to achieve. And the, you know, the main thing that people want to achieve just on an instinctive level is reproduction, like having your own children. You know, that's the, that's the highest level of achievement that there is. You can't do anything more meaningful than that, including be president or chairman of the joint chiefs or running Google. Like nothing is more meaningful than having kids. So like, if you're going to do that and you should, most people should,
0: That's going to vary by individual, right? Not everyone's going to get their primary source of meaning from having kids. I'm sure that's wonderful advice for many people. Uh, Other people are better off not having kids, right? Other people will have kids, but they won't be their primary source of meaning. People are infinitely complicated.
1: Um, Then, you know, you should start early. The other thing you should do is not delay adulthood. I don't, especially, I see this... uh, I don't want to get lectury because I am 53 and that's one of the casualties of getting middle age. Like, and another thing, <laughs> thank God I have my job so I can do it for a living. But, um, you, you, you see these people, kids, young people, kids in their early twenties, particularly boys, like run from responsibility. No. Responsibility is joy. Like there is, you know, there is no deep satisfaction in, eating french toast in a hotel room
0: and this is this is important because the the primary source of, of mental illness according to leah greenfield the sociologist who i've been intrigued with the past few weeks is too much freedom right and so finding yourself i didn't know about you but my experience of people going on a, a journey to find themselves it doesn't seem to be a terribly effective way to go through life People tend to be much happier and much more effective when they take on responsibility and obligation rather than go on a journey trying to find themselves. And I say this, obviously, as someone who's gone on a journey to try to find himself and spend, you know, spent an inordinate amount of my life in introspection.
1: You know, like vacations mean nothing. Where you find satisfaction is through achievement and achievement comes through commitment and responsibility. So my advice to young people, particularly young men, is just dive face first into it. Like drop out of college, college is ridiculous, unless you're moving towards some very specialized degree that you can only get in college, if you wanna be a veterinarian or a physicist or something. But if you're in humanities, you know I can give you a list of a hundred books, you can find it on the internet, and you'll be better educated than you would be at whatever stupid college you go to, A. B, get married. And, you know, choose wisely, but don't overthink it. You know, don't overthink it. People overthink it. Like if you're compatible with someone and and you can smell that, you can make it work. And by the way, it's never easy because men and women fundamentally don't understand each other. That's the whole joy in it. That's why marriage makes you grow is because you don't really understand the other person. So you have to try every day.
0: And uh, how many boosters are too much for Luke? So I've had two booster shots, two vaccine shots, then two booster shots. Keep in mind, there's very little precedent to be recklessly doing so with newer tech like MRNA. I, I will follow the, the consensus, the, the medical consensus. That's, that's what I plan to do. So I'm looking forward to getting my third booster shot this fall.
1: To decipher what that person's saying, have more children than you can afford Take a job you're not qualified for. Like, go balls out. You know, just go balls out. I don't know, what is everyone waiting for? You know, have some adventure in your life. Do something crazy. I mean it. And and I don't mean, you know, go to Bali. Skip Bali, please. What an Instagram <laughs> cliche that is. You want to do something crazy? Yeah, m- m- marry some chick who you think is nice and hot. Those are, I think, the two... Main qualification, someone you're attracted to, because romance is the heart of marriage that is true, and someone who you think is
0: okay this idea that romance is the heart of marriage I think that's a highly dubious assertion. I mean some people are lucky enough to you have to keep the the romance going, but uh i mean from from an outside perspective, it seems like the heart of, of marriage is is commitment to each other, taking on responsibilities you know building something but is it really romance? The heart of marriage? Count me skeptical.
1: Kind. I mean, my personal, you know, the advice I always give to people who work for me is: if you're assessing whether you want to live with a woman for the rest of your life, when she gets mad at you, does she yell at you or does she
0: cry? If she cries, so Cliff Medley says in France, they only give the annual flu shot to people over sixty. Yeah, I, I I've been getting it for, for years, but I don't have any strong. Strong uh, belief that it's uh, terribly effective, and I also understand that most people who will die from COVID or get severely sick with COVID are, you know, either morbidly obese, you know, have you know massive comorbidities, or over seventy. So I'm fifty-six. I don't think that the vaccine shots or, or the boosters are terribly important for for me. For people who have have my level of health and vitality
1: marry her if she yells at you don't anyway whatever
0: but you know everyone has their own, their
1: own <laughs> list it's true
12: it's so true i think in tons of guys are watching this like that is so obvious and yet it's never it's tragic. so
1: obvious yeah. Yeah. and but you get nothing yeah. like this whole idea that like you know banging 40 people in your 20s is
0: and laponia says why do you call the boosters because that's the primary way they're referred to all right words are simply symbols for reality Right, and so they are called booster shots. That's the dominant way that they're referred to. Right, I, I could use a different terminology from everybody else. Right, but uh, I'm I'm here to try to communicate to people. I find generally speaking, the most effective way to communicate with people is to use words in the way that they are most commonly understood. So, for example, conspiracy theory. Right, when people talk about conspiracy theories, they're not literally talking about conspiracies to do things like uh, what Al-Qaeda did on 9-11, conspiracy theory in the way it is popularly used and understood, its primary meaning is for an elaborate conspiracy for which there's no strong evidence, right? Conspiracies happen all the time, but when we talk about conspiracy theories, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things for which there's no strong evidence.
1: It's like a net positive or something. It's like actually not even that fun. Yeah. And I think it, it, for men anyway, it's all in the chase you know anyway and men are like programmed to
0: so here tucker is doing what he often criticizes other people for doing he's he's effectively lying to try to promote a good cause all right i mean casual sex is a lot of fun <laughs> and people have had it for, for decades and three decades into having casual sex they you know they they get a lot of pleasure and excitement and, and fun from it now, it comes with tremendous downsides, but Tucker is you know, exaggerating the case, just like he accuses people promoting vaccines as exaggerating the case. And this is really common. When you think you have something important to say, you want to try to make your case as dramatic and compelling as possible so you'll overwhelmingly feel this compulsion to exaggerate and even lie.
1: To want to hunt down and you know, want to pursue women, of course.
0: I don't find the chase that exciting. I mean, I'm a terribly lazy womanizer, right? The chase doesn't really do it for me. It's the intimacy that that does it for me. So I don't think that it's the chase that primarily motivates men because men could, you know, pursue all sorts of other things that would be a lot easier and a lot better for them. Men have, compared to women, enormous levels of testosterone that makes them and sends them in the direction of being sexually compulsive you know very few men will turn down the opportunity to have sex with a young attractive woman right most men would be willing to give up everything including risk the the presidency of the united states to have this because they have a strong visceral need to have sex not to have the chase right wasn't chasing monica lewinsky that drove Bill Clinton what drove Bill Clinton is that he really liked the feel of her lips around his penis All right, so i was cascading a friend the other day for being so reductionist in his approach to women because he was just waxing lyrical about you know how wonderful it was to get head and i was saying that's reductionist bro there's so much more to women than than giving oral sex but now making the opposite argument you can't discount the power and allure and and of of a woman, you know, giving you oral sex and you can't discount the, the tremendous sexual drive that uh, healthy men tend to have, right? It's why they tend to be willing to risk everything to get off with a hot, attractive young woman. And it's not the chase because you can chase a million things, right? What do men chase, right? They chase sex with attractive young women. It's not the chase itself. It's the pleasure of the sexual act and the things that come with it.
1: But that's that's the pleasure. Like having sex with strangers is never that fun. Like let's let's just like stop lying about it. And you're too drunk anyway.
0: Sex with with uh, strangers or people you don't know very well is not that fun. Uh, that wasn't my experience. I mean, I- I've never had sex without talking to someone for at least an hour. So, I mean, you can really get to know someone in, in an hour. But he's denying, you know, basic bitch biology. Men. Are filled with testosterone, and they want to nut, right? They they feel biologically driven to nut.
1: <laughs> and you're gonna have a yeah. much
0: no. I'm serious,
1: but I was like, I can't get married because I gotta like sleep with all these random girls. Okay, you know, call me when you're finished doing that. First of all, it's super easy, yeah. so that's like not an achievement at all because feminism has.
0: It's not super easy. Right? It's it's quite difficult to have sex with, with a lot of women. Very few men can, can do it. Almost all men fantasize about it. Only a small number of men get to pull it off.
1: Convinced women they have to be like men, so like they have to sleep with you or whatever. It's, it's also unbelievably fucked up. It's hard to believe it's actually real, but it is. Anyway,
0: um, but it's all fake. It's all like... Uh, Stella J says, Ah, oral sex is okay. I never found it that amazing. Well, most women are not particularly skilled at oral sex. Like when you encounter one who is you almost want to sell all your earthly possessions and go and follow her. I mean you get regular mind blowing oral sex from a woman wow whoa I mean I'm a very strong moral man, but the way it uh, it can compromise you I mean there aren't many women who can You know, just through oral, you know, get you off, you know, guaranteed every time. But when you encounter one who does and has some enthusiasm with it, it shakes you to your core.
1: Pure propaganda. That's why everyone's so unhappy.
0: (laughs) Why is everyone so
1: unhappy? Well, because they're living lives that will produce unhappiness, that have no meaning. Like, that's the truth. Add meaning to your life and you will be happy
12: hundred percent. And it's like, again, that's so obvious. How often do we hear people in media, people in politics talk about that? It's, it's so obvious. I have a few questions. The first question, which I think came to me when you were speaking is you're talking about how a lot of young men don't have meaning, don't have purpose. Do you think porn is the main driver behind that? Do you think because men can just get that stimulation from a bunch of pixels on a screen? Do you think that is really, do you think that's been a big change since you were a kid? Well, it's
1: certainly been a big it's certainly been a big change. I mean, I'll be honest. That's one subject that, you know, we've done a couple segments on it, but I'm, I'm just too squeamish really to kind of dig into it. But my suspicion is exactly what you said. I mean, it's a massive change like that did not exist.
0: Now, for the first year of a relationship, men and women have in the same ballpark level of sexual desire, but for almost all women, it just drops off a cliff after about a year and then it's just overwhelmingly men who are chasing sex. Uh, Chat says no woman gives you know regular mind blowing oral uh, but some women are adept and schooled at it, and so I mean some you know upper class wives you know they get. They get paid by their husbands for every time that they do it, right? But to be with a woman who has that skill, who can uh, whip it out when, when she wants to, it's a very powerful thing. Chat says, you know, women just use this to get you hooked, and they use it against you, and then it stops. Well, men do the same thing, right? Men do certain things to get women hooked, and then when they've got them hooked, they don't behave as well. So when I was initially dating a woman, you know, I'd make, you know, make very sure that I wasn't passing gas. Like being a vegetarian is a terribly flatulent way to live your life. I be, mean, it was really bad. But ever since I started taking the beef organ capsules, my flatulence is just a thing of the past. I always never had flatulence before. And it was a major obstacle in my work life. Like I'd be in my boss's office. Like I'd try to get out of the, the hallway, you know, I'd let one loose in the boss's office when he wasn't there. Yeah, you know, then then I'd I'd go about my thing, and fifteen minutes later he'd walk into his office and he could still smell the odor. I mean, I had so many bosses who got mad at me because of my flatulence. The vegetarian diet—it's just a real killer for for the passing of gas. Thank God, beef organ capsules completely solved the problem. Don't know how. In
1: 1984, you know, when I was 15 it does exist now. So of course, they're going to be any anytime you have a societal change, you're going to have downstream effects. And if it's a big change, they're going to be big effects. And
0: I'm convinced that Luke's positions come from just wanting to disagree with his entire audience. Yeah, well, I'm not going to say something that you already know and believe. I mean, that's absolutely pointless. So I read the chat and I look for something that I can react to. I'm looking for a peer that I can push off against, a P-I-E-R. Right. I'm looking for like a concrete, you know, swimming pool, uh, you know, wall that I can push off against. Right. I- I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, you know, great point, glib medley. Luke's standing up for the gay disco tonight.
1: So, yeah, I would imagine that's true. I mean, everything about porn is bad. I mean, of course. Um, and it's also true. And I'll just be totally blunt with you. You know, I wouldn't look that shit up at gunpoint because i just don't trust the internet and so i believe that everything you look at first of all your camera's watching you okay or it can and everything you look at on the internet is a matter of permanent record. so like I, it, you know I, I don't think you can be too paranoid about using the internet i just, I just don't
0: okay that will do it for tonight take care bye bye